The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. If you have your Bibles with you, would you please open to two different places, Hebrews chapter 11 and John chapter 21. We're going to look at both this morning, and I'm sure that Hebrews 11 is one we'll come back to soon, but uh, I'll just say this at the outset. These next few weeks are going to be uncomfortable. They're going to be difficult, and um, not because that conspiracy theorist uncle is coming for Thanksgiving dinner, right? Not, not because of that, not because of seasonal illnesses or all those things, though those are difficult. These next few sermons, and, and if we take this seriously, this, this study that we're doing together will be uncomfortable because we will be called to, by faith, step out in obedience to God, into uncertainty, into situations where we don't know exactly how it's going to go. Why is that uncomfortable? Well, when God calls us to join him in his work, he is calling us to participate in things that are beyond our ability, beyond our power, beyond our control. He calls us to God-sized assignments. That doesn't mean that they're big all the time. They might be incredibly small and ordinary, and yet they challenge us. They call us to a faith beyond our own skills, our own foresight, and beyond our own experience. You are going to have to trust God and follow him. When we realize that God is at work all around us and that he loves us and in this love relationship, he invites us into his work, into the work that he's doing, he speaks to us. And as he does, that next step can be really scary. Will we actually step out and join him in his work? Will we actually do what he's called us to do? We reach this decision point, don't we? where we have to decide, are we going to follow the leading of God or are we going to trust in only what we can see? We see this throughout the scriptures. Scripture is packed with this kind of thing. Will Gideon go into battle with just 300 soldiers, not knowing how that will turn out against a much larger army? Will David step out in faith with just a sling and a stone against the giant Goliath? Will Peter step out of the boat and walk on water? Will the disciples step out and pronounce healing on the sick and deliverance from demons? Like to be called to do that, we look at the scriptures and and we think, well, of course, they're the disciples. No, No, they're, they're incredibly ordinary, flawed individuals as we'll see this morning. And yet they are invited into the work of God. And what we see is incredible things happen as they step forward in obedience. So often we want God to reveal himself to us. We want to experience him and say, show me yourself clearly, then I will obey. But what we see, the pattern in scripture is actually that as people obey the leading of God, the speaking of God, as they obey, then they experience the power and the might and the wonder of what God can do as he does what only he can do. But it's a decision point, a crisis of belief. When I say a crisis of belief, I don't don't necessarily mean my life is falling apart. I'm at rock bottom. I don't know what to think anymore. No, I mean simply those moments in life. And there are many in which you are sure God is leading you. You are sure that God is speaking to you and you face a decision point to take action and to perhaps forsake some things in your life or step into some new things in your life for his sake, but you're not sure whether you will say yes to God or not. You're not sure that whether you'll say yes to him today. This is where faith comes in. Have any of you ever faced those kinds of decision points? Will I say yes as God leads me? Perhaps today something will come to mind for you. It might be something incredibly simple. God is calling you to to stop a certain thing or or to have a certain conversation, to begin something new or to continue faithfully in something. And, And you're wondering today, will I say yes? Will I continue 
in what God has called me to do. See, this is where, like I said, faith comes in. Faith in this gift from God, but also this exercise of trusting him beyond what we can see. In Hebrews chapter 11, which I invited you to turn to, it's a very famous passage. It's about faith, right? Hebrews 11, and it says this. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. There is an invisible reality. In our humanity, we don't have the full picture. We don't know everything that's happening behind the scenes as God works. But have we come to the point in this love relationship with God where we trust him with what we cannot see? where we trust him beyond our own skills, beyond our own ability to walk by faith, not by sight in what we cannot see. The, see, the way that we live our lives, the way that we respond to the word of God and actually live our lives is a testimony to what we believe about God. Does your life reflect a life of faith? Does your life reflect a life of faith? Or does your life reflect only living by sight in the comfort of what we can see, grasp, control? I want you to listen to how the author of Hebrews continues to describe this in verse four. It says, by faith, Abel offered to Cain a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So this, this act of, of just giving generously of what God had given to him, this is what he commends as faith through Cain. And though through his faith he died, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he could not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Listen to this. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. This was something that did not make sense, and yet God had instructed him. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith. He went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. I could keep going. Hebrews chapter 11 is a great chapter. And if you want to tune me out, just read that chapter this morning. But what we see in it is this confidence in these believers in God, in an unseen world, in an unseen uh, reality, and also in his promises that God is trustworthy that they can trust him as they step out beyond what they can understand in faith. And I've been wrestling with this all week because it's actually really challenging when we consider this. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. And it's caused me to wonder, perhaps we could wonder this together this morning. Am I doing anything in my life as led by the Lord that requires faith? I'm not talking about taking foolish risks for the sake of our own good ideas and for our pride. When plenty of us make foolish decisions and we just venture out and take risks, our, our Amazon purchases probably reflect that a little bit. I'm not talking about those kinds of things, but rather a humble risk and obedient response to the leading of God. Does your life reflect a life of faith or a life of sight? What is faith? What is faith? Maybe you've heard this acronym. It's a great acronym, F. A-I-T-H, forsaking all 
I trust him. Forsaking all, I trust him. See, it's not a confidence in ourselves, but in a person. And that is God Almighty. That what God has declared will come to pass. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it talks about this Christian life. It says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And so what is that for you? Maybe it's a call to ministry. I think that's kind of the, the example that's often given, the step of faith to, to quit your job, travel to the far side of the world and do something for the kingdom. And that does happen. And that's incredible. But we're called to a daily faith a daily walking, not by sight. And so what does that look like for you today? Will we trust him with the well-being of our children? Will we trust him to be obedient with our finances when, when the math of our life is in doubt? Will we trust him to give up that, that habit, that thing that we know that is destroying us and we can't really give it up? Will we trust him with it and say, I can't, but I know you can. It's simply a matter of this. Will our yes be unto the Lord? Will we trust him as we step out in faith and speak about Jesus in our workplace? When, when people come to us uh, on Monday morning and ask, what did you do this weekend? Well, we stop pretending we didn't go to church, right? And let them know that we have some light, some light to offer. People need it desperately, but will we trust him? Not as we're led in our own strength and our own good intentions, no, but to seek him in this living relationship in which he instructs us and we respond in obedience, not necessarily knowing what comes next. Will your answer be yes, Lord? Yes, Lord. Because I think often in life, whether we say this out loud or not, we, we say something more like no, Lord, when he instructs him, which uh, us, which does not make sense. Right? To say no Lord is to indicate that he is, is not actually your Lord. And yet he's so good, he's so patient with us and he calls us again and again to these opportunities to respond to him. When God speaks to us, he invites us into his work. It's not our work, it's his work. It's beyond us and that leads us to a momentary crisis, a decision point. Will we trust God with our obedience in spite of all the objections, all the reasons we don't want to follow through on what he's led us to? I want you to turn now to John chapter 21, where we're going to see someone in a crisis of belief, significant crisis of belief. And this is a passage that, that uh, actually Brendan uh, preached about a couple months ago as he was just giving us a big overview of the life of Peter. And if you're having trouble finding the passage, so am I. So here we go. John chapter 21 is where we'll be today. And in this passage, we're going to see Peter who was once known as Simon, this disciple of Jesus, who we know really well, uh, who was one of the first called by Jesus. He was one of the first called to this ministry, and he was one of the first to recognize who Jesus was. As Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Remember this? They said, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, and then he turns to them and he says, but who do you say I am? And this is the response of, of Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. It says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, one of the first to recognize this. And then Jesus answers him this way. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then listen to what Jesus tells Peter. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. He gives him a nickname in that moment. You are no longer Simon. You are the rock, Dwayne the rock Bar-Jonah. No, <laughs> Peter the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Come on now. You hear that speech from Jesus. 
in response to this revelation that God has given you. And he says, he says, you're the rock. You're the rock. And I'm going to build my church on you. And he, he declares to him this authority that he has on earth and in these heavenly places. He's given him this tremendous commission that's beyond anything Peter could expect. And what would that make Peter feel like? Maybe he'd shrink a little bit. But what we see from Peter is he probably loved this. He's bold already. Peter is, is full of courage. He's faithful. He's risk-taking for the sake of Jesus and his mission. He's willing to fight, physically fight, if that's what it takes. And he's seen Jesus do amazing things. He's seen Jesus moving in power, and he's actually joined him in many of his miracles. And in John chapter 21, though, despite Peter and Jesus having this long track record together, this close relationship where they're walking side by side, and Peter is doing many of the same things that he's seen his Lord do, we find Peter in John chapter 21 struggling at a decision point. Why? Because just weeks earlier, if you know the context, his friend, his savior, his Lord was arrested and tortured and killed on a cross. And big, bold Peter has shrunk away from Jesus in those moments, denying any affiliation with the one who was going to die for him. Peter has denied Jesus. His faith on some level has been shaken. And despite seeing the reality of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus has appeared to him twice already. Peter is still, in some sense, from what we'll see in, in the remainder of this passage, he is still not living into the calling that God had placed on his life. He's still, in some sense, living in the, in the shame of what he's done. He's in a crisis of belief. And John chapter 21, starting this way, in verse one, it says, after this, so Jesus is resurrected. He's, he's kind of appearing as he wills to different people. He's not always with them, but it says after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself, that is, he manifested himself physically. He was there with them presently in his resurrected form. And he revealed himself in this way. It says, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. So there's seven of these disciples there in Galilee. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Now, I don't know what they're up to. They're, they're back home in, in some sense. And he does what he's familiar with. He says, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, okay, we'll go with you. And they went out into the boat that night. Or, but that night they caught, what did the disciples always catch? Nothing, right? They, they catch nothing. They are apparently not that great at their job. But here they again have caught nothing. Now, we don't know why they decided to go fishing. We don't know why Peter initiated this. But what we do know is that, is that in some sense, this signals a return to the life that Peter knew prior to following Jesus. He's going back to the old stuff, the old familiar place. This, this is a far cry from battling the gates of hell. And it's a far cry from what we'll see play out in, in Acts post-Pentecost. But here he is with his old friends in his hometown, in his familiar boat. And I would submit to you, based on what we see next, Peter's faith is shaky. I don't know what's going through Peter's mind, but I can imagine what would be going through my mind. I, I can give you a glimpse into what I would be thinking in this moment, just weeks removed from this denial of my Lord. I would be thinking, I failed Jesus. I don't have what it takes. He must have picked the wrong guy for this call. I'm not up for the assignment. I can't do this. Here's the truth, though. That kind of wrestling that we go through, doesn't it say more about what we believe God is capable of than what we are capable of? We see throughout Scripture, cover to cover, God working through flawed, broken, weak people to accomplish his purposes, to do amazing things. The Scriptures are packed with these stories. 
But as we read Hebrews 11, what it requires is they step out in their weakness, in their uncertainty onto this limb of faith. So it says they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And then, then it says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Now, this word children, it's not Jesus demeaning the disciples. He's not calling them little kids. It's not what's going on here, but rather this is more of a colloquial phrase. It's kind of the way that, that uh, a man these days might refer to his friends as his boys, right? You ever heard that? Or, or British people would say lads. And so he calls out from the shore, lads, have you caught any fish? And um, they haven't. And so I wonder how they might feel as they're looking back at the shore. This stranger, they don't know who it is, yelling out to them after watching them hour after hour failing in their job. I wonder how that would feel. Well, well I actually had a, the rare privilege this weekend of going golfing. And I am terrible at golf. Not good at all. But I, I just imagine, what if someone was watching the entire time, watching me play after I've just had the worst game of my life as I'm hitting the ball out of people's backyards constantly trying to get back on track. And, and that individual calls out from 100 yards off, so how'd you shoot today? Any birdies? I don't know how you'd feel, but I know how I'd feel. And there the disciples look at their empty nets. They hear, have you caught any fish tonight? And we can understand the brevity of their response. They just yell back one word, no, no. And so he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. This is familiar. I mean, this has definitely got their curiosity going. Maybe this individual on the beach sees something they don't see. And so they cast it. And then it says, now they were not able to haul it in because the quantity of fish. So this has happened before. This happened when Peter was first called. This is so familiar. And so the disciple that Jesus loves, it says, John, he recognizes this. He says, this is the Lord. And Simon Peter Despite his doubts that we'll see in a moment, despite his denial of Jesus, he is still, it's, it's just, he has to be with Jesus. He has to draw near to Jesus. So it says that when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments. This is kind of unusual. He puts on his cloak for you stripped to work and he threw himself into the sea. He threw himself into the sea. They recognize the Lord based on something they've seen him do. Well, we've talked about this for many weeks, but do you know how to recognize the voice of the Lord? Have you come to draw near to him in his word, by his spirit, through prayer or through your circumstances or through other believers in the church? Have you come to recognize his voice and to be able to, to tell when he calls, it is the Lord. Peter puts on his clothes, jumps in the water. It says he throws himself into the sea. I, I can imagine this wasn't very graceful. And he begins to paddle his way to the shore. And I love this. I think it's a funny scene, actually. I, I can picture the boat rowing next to him and they're outpacing Peter as he's fully cloaked, swimming his best to get back to the beach. And then it says, the other disciples came in the boat and they were dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Now, why 153? It's very similar to my golf score actually, but I think... <laughs> I think when we, <laughs> when we see these passages, it can be tempting to get into numerology and what does this number mean and what's the significance. I think this is just one of the biggest catches of their life, and so they count it and they remember it, right? And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I want you to imaginatively picture yourself there at the scene. This is a great scene, isn't it? The, the waves gently crashing on the beach, the, the cool morning air, it is crisp. The sun is starting to rise over the water and there's the crackle of a fire and fresh breakfast being cooked for the disciples. I would love to be here in this moment to spend this time with Jesus. And it says that in verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, he kind of calls him aside or at least calls his attention to the side. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I want you to notice that. What name does he use for him in this moment? He doesn't call him the rock. He doesn't call him Peter, his old nickname. No, he pulls him to the side and he addresses him by his old name. This must have struck Peter. See, in his denial of, of Jesus, Peter was displaying his, his pre-Jesus shakiness. And there's this message to Peter from Jesus as he uses his old name. But, but this is the, the wonder of what Jesus does to us. When he comes to us, what he is about to offer Peter is not a rebuke, but an opportunity to restore him anew, to call him in this crisis of belief, to trust him, to step back into the work, the call that Jesus has placed on his life. And so he asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, what are the these that he's referring to here? There's a couple of possibilities. Number one would be he's, he's pointing to all his stuff, the fishing boats, uh, the, the nets, this life, all the stuff that he's so familiar with. Peter, do you love me more than this? all the trappings of your old life, the comfort, the things that you know and have cherished before meeting me? Do you love me more than these? Or maybe he's asking, do you love me more than you love these other guys, these disciples, the six others that are here? Do you love me more than you love these guys? Or thirdly, he might be asking this, and I think this, this is what is behind the question. I'll explain why in a moment. Do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Now, most commentators would fall for that, that kind of that last view. Do you love me more than the other disciples? These other men love me. Why? Because Jesus seems to be recalling these prior claims of, of Peter. Peter, when, when Jesus says, you'll all fall away, you'll all turn away from me. Peter says, no, not I, Lord. Even if I have to die, I will not turn away. And in that, he's kind of exalting himself over the others. He's saying, yeah, I could see the rest of them doing that, but not me not Simon, not the one you've called the rock. I actually love you more than these others love you. And now in this moment of restoration, Jesus looks into the eyes of Simon and he says, Simon, do you love me more than these? Now, you know the story. If, if you've read this passage before, obviously, Peter denied Jesus three times. And in this restoration, Jesus is going to ask Peter the same question three times. But these questions that as he asks them, they actually carry some nuance in them in the original languages as they're written that give some, some texture to the subtlety of this conversation. They're talking to each other in Aramaic, but John who records this story for us, he records it in the Greek and in it, he chooses specific Greek words for this word love in order to help us understand kind of the tone of this discussion. And so I want you to realize that in this threefold question and answer, there's actually two distinct words being used here for love. There are, are actually a couple different Greek words for love that we translate love. There's, there's eros, there's storgi, there's phileo and agape. The two that we see in this passage are phileo and agape. And, and so phileo, what that means is genuine friendship, camaraderie, brotherly love. From it, we get the, the name Philadelphia. And so this is kind of an emotional connection with, with people you like a lot. This emotional connection, it's, it's more emotional, less volitional, and it's less of a, a conscious choice or decision. It's more just a, a natural affinity, a brotherhood. The second 
love we see here used is agape or agapeo. And agape is this word that Christians latched onto in the early church because to them, it was the word that best described what Jesus had done. It is this selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. It's the highest type of love that we see in the Bible, the form of love most clearly associated with what Jesus did on the cross as he sacrificed himself for the sins of the world. And so it's this latter, agape, that Jesus uses when addressing Peter. He says, Simon, do you truly love me more than these? In this passage, the question is agape, but the response from Peter, as John records it, is phileo. He says, Lord, you know that I love you. But it's it's like this. Lord, you know that I'm your friend. I love you like a brother. Jesus then asks him again. It says this. He says, Simon, do you truly love me more than these? I'm going to actually use, J.B. Phillips paraphrases it this way to give us some simplicity. He says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these others? And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I'm your friend. Then feed my lambs, Jesus returned. Then he said for the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter returned. You know that I'm your friend. Then care for my sheep, replied Jesus. Each time Jesus asks Peter if he possesses this kind of deep-seated, self-sacrificing, unconditional love, do you truly love me? And each time Peter's response says, he just says, you know, I love you. But there's a tone in it that's like, I love you like a brother. In light of all that he's done, he can't seem to acknowledge to Jesus that he possesses that kind of love, the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. He knows that he's fallen short. So there's a holding back in his response because his recent actions have not indicated this agape love. They've actually even called into question his friendship of Jesus as he shrunk back in Jesus's moment of crisis. In the same way, I think we have this issue too. If our recent actions, our failures, our struggles have indicated a contradiction in the statement that we love the Lord, we have a tendency to not look up at the cross and praise him and glorify him and say, I love you, Lord. But when asked, can you honestly say, I love you, Jesus? Our head kind of goes down. I do love you. I do love you. You know that I love you. And yet in this pressing of Jesus into the heart of Peter, into his wandering heart, in in what he's doing here, in his mercy, he's inviting Peter back into relationship to raise his gaze, to by repetition of this love for the Lord, to be stirred anew with affection towards Jesus and to respond. And in response to that affection, Jesus, he stirs his affection and then calls him to action, feed my lambs, care for my sheep. And he does the same for us. Are you at a decision point? Are you at a a crisis of belief? Maybe that's one declaration that you need to make in order for your heart to be yes towards the Lord. Lord, I do love you. You know that I love you. And despite that being maybe hard for you to say today because of, of the weight of your own sin upon your shoulders, tell him anew. Tell him anew. Let that declaration stir your affection for him. This is the invitation of Jesus. Come back to me. Come back to this relationship. And as you do, I have work for you to do. Feed my lambs, care for my sheep. Pray to him today. Lord, you know that despite my actions, by your grace, I love you. You know that I'm your friend. This brings us to verse 17, in which Jesus, he asks the question the third time. And in this, he actually softens it. He changes the verb from agape to phileo. So the third time Jesus spoke to him and said, Simon, son of John, are you my friend? Do you love me like a brother? 
And it says Peter was deeply hurt because Jesus' third question to him was, are you my friend? Jesus, in this, this gentle rebuke, this threefold rebuke and restoration of Peter, he is breaking Peter's walls down. Peter can't pretend that he's got it together. Instead, he, he breaks down before the Lord, deeply hurt because of what he's done, but also because of what it, it declares about him. And yet here, Jesus is calling him once again to friendship. And he looks up through his tears as he's deeply hurt in response to that third question. And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Notice Jesus here, he's not concerned with this list of service from Peter. He's not asking about all the things Peter has done. He's concerned about Peter's heart. And he's asking us today, do you love me? Are you my friend? Do you love me? See, I think often when we come to a decision point in our faith, what we started talking out, these decision points, these crises of belief, will I go this way, the way that the Lord leads me or not? Will I say yes to the Lord or not? I think that often it comes down to a question of our affection. Do we really love him? Do we really love him? Will we trust him? Will I live by faith and not by sight? I think often it's less an obedience problem as a result of action, but more an issue of our affection. And what James says when he talks about this relationship between us and the Lord is that, is that our, our faith, our true faith, will, will result in action, driven by this affection for the Lord. Action is the evidence of our faith. Faith proved true by our work. But here in this appeal to Peter, Jesus calls for both. Affection evidenced by action. Faith demonstrated by work. And then here, he, he, for Jesus, he's satisfied in this discussion with Peter. You can tell it's like the bond between the two of them are restored because Jesus then recommissions him for the purpose to which he called him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress and carry you, you where you do not want to go. He says this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. He's, he's telling Peter that the rest of your life is going to be for my kingdom. And you, like I did on the cross, you will die for this belief. But then after saying this, he simply says to him, follow me. Peter is back. What we see play out over the coming weeks is he's back in faithful service. What we see after Pentecost is not that Peter doesn't have failures and, and foils, no. But he's all in for the rest of his days for the sake of Christ until he eventually gives his life for Jesus. Maybe this isn't the conclusion we were hoping for as a church. You're telling me that the faithful action to live by faith might result in death in the end? Well, actually, that's what the author of Hebrews says. God does these amazing works. And yet there are many who will suffer because of a life of faith. They will suffer. They will forsake certain comforts and they, they may even go through torture and death. Why? Because for those that are, are living by faith, the scripture says the world is not worthy of them. There is a better kingdom, a higher calling beyond this life for those that live this life of faith. I want you to picture the scene one more time. Peter, feeling the shame over what he's done and the piercing gaze of Jesus invites him back into this love relationship. Peter, do you love me? And he looks at our hearts this morning in the same way and he asks, do you love me? Will you follow me by faith? Will you trust me? See, if you trust Jesus with your life, you can trust and have assurance just as Peter did that he loves you, has forgiven you, that he has a divine purpose for your life. And at that decision point that you are facing right now today, whatever it is, that crisis of belief, will you trust him? And will your affection-driven faith result in action? 
we're coming to a conclusion here, but I just want to tell you a, a very brief story about a couple in our church. Their names are Gary and Lisa. And if you've ever talked to Gary and Lisa, you would never know because they have no accent, but they're from, <laughs> they're from Northern Ireland, from Belfast. Years ago, they sensed that the Lord had led them to the United States to, to minister, to be missionaries, to, to support and build up the church, right? The church as a whole, and then the church specifically locally. He brought them here, and we're very grateful for that. But in that time, let me tell you, they took some, some tremendous risks in responding to what they sensed was the clear leading of God to step out into this mission field and to go, to go beyond what they could see. And they've trusted Jesus for their daily bread. And, and uh, he's provided for them every step in the way, though, though I can tell you that I think it was scary and stressful and continues to be almost every day to live this kind of life of by faith living. Well, we love Gary and Lisa and we want them to stay here. And so about a year ago, we began this process of, of bringing them through uh, the, the immigration to um, extend their visa three years for them to be able to work at the church. Lisa works in our front office, managing the office. She works with King's Kids and she's incredible. Gary is amazing. And he works with our, our missions team here and he drums for us often and our men's ministry. He does a lot of things. And so we wanted them to stay, obviously. But more importantly, they had, they had determined that the Lord had spoken to them and he wanted them to be here. The only problem was their immigration status was about to expire. And they were caught in this, this no man's land where they needed to figure that out. And, and so we began this process of, of moving towards that. And at the same time, Gary's aging parents were getting into their last weeks, months, maybe days of life, especially his mom. And so on the one hand, we have this tension where they wanna go home and they wanna go back to what they know and they wanna go back to be with family. And on the other hand, we have this calling that God has placed on their life. Will they be faithful to where he has led them? And in the natural, we're, like, we're all like, go see mom. Go spend time with her, right? That, that's what most of our hearts would move toward. But both Gary and, and Lisa were convinced that the Lord had led them. And not only that, but their mom and dad, Gary's mom and dad kept saying to them, you better not come back. If God has led you to America, you better stick with what he's led you to do. We'll see you in heaven, you know? And so they're, they're wrestling with that. And I'm like, God, come on, we, we want both. The only problem is if they go back to just visit, they have to stay there for 10 years. They are not allowed back in America for 10 years because of their, their pending immigration status at the time. And so we begin this process and we're praying and, and praying for God's leading. And, and this is, this, to sum it up, I would say Gary and Lisa are full of flaws. If you know them, you, you know that. They're not perfect people. But what I can tell you is that when it comes to doing the work and will of God, as far as they know it, their heart is yes toward God. And that's, that's simply what the Lord would call us to, is not to know what's going to happen next, but to simply have a yes toward God. And so, so they came back to us and we're like, you know what? We think God has called us to stay here. We can't go back. So if, it, if it's a choice between going back and visiting ill family members or staying here on the mission God's led us to, we're going to stay. But God's bigger than that. God's bigger than that. Because after praying for about a, a year and us laboring through this immigration process, many of you being very generous uh, to help this process along, and one day we get this notice that says that Lisa has been approved this visa status in Gary as well for three more years in the US, but on one condition, they have to go home. They have to go home for three weeks. <laughs> How awesome is that? The, the, it's like these things that seem in opposition, but to God, it's nothing. He's, he had their yes. And as they stepped out in trust of him into the unknown, he gave them both. They got to be there with Gary, with his mom, just weeks before she passed. She's with the Lord now. 
And, and so they got to exchange, not a goodbye, but a see you later because they'll be together again. Gary asked me not to make him cry this morning and I think it's probably too late. <laughs> but why do I tell that story? Because Gary and Lisa are awesome? No, no, because God is awesome. And I want to give him glory, but also to tell you that often in our walk with God, this crisis of belief for, for me and for you is whether I will trust God with the calling that he's placed on my life. Will I trust that where he guides, he will also provide? Will I trust where for that next step where I'm weak and I'm inadequate, that he has enough, that he has it figured out? Will you trust him and give him what little faith you have, that faith of a mustard seed to just take that next step that next step. What is that next step for you? Maybe it's a call you've been putting off that you need to make. Maybe it's a change that you need to submit to the Lord, a confession that the Lord has stirred in your heart. Maybe it's a message to share with a loved one or to trust him, whether it's in your, your financial situation or your job to simply say, God, I'm gonna stop forcing it my way. I trust you. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. See, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It starts there. To live this life of trust and faith in God, you need to know that he exists, to believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's pray right now.